Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 1. Affliction's blessing. Affliction comes to all of us. The struggles of this life in a sin-cursed world are going to touch each one of us. Some more, some less, some sooner, some later. But affliction touches us all. As we have sung this morning together, as we considered in the song just a few moments ago, however, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of the difficult times, when, when, whether, it's, whether it's spiritual affliction or whether it's physical affliction, emotional affliction, we have an advocate with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We, we have a God in heaven who loves us. And more than that, as we think of those words that my wife and I just sang, arise my soul, arise. Within that concept, the same concept which David would often say in the Psalms, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. It's not just about me bucking up. It's about recognizing that when God brings into our lives circumstances which would not necessarily be desirable or favorable, He's still working something. Something is still happening. Oftentimes we'll find when we look for it that in affliction there is a blessing. That God will take the ashes and make beauty for ashes. This morning we pick up in Luke chapter 1 with Elizabeth and Zacharias and we're going to see a, a circumstance where there was affliction. And we're going to see in that affliction a blessing. We continue in the text just after the birth of John. Verse 57 and 58 of Luke chapter 1 tells us, Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son, and her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. Mary presumably is now gone. The text told us last week that Mary left after six months, which would have been about the time that John was born. Mary's gone. And Elizabeth brings forth a son. Now, there was no ultrasound technology in that day. Uh, the people did not know. The people around them did not know that this would be a son, aside from perhaps the, the, the regular, you know, what, what mothers and wives might say are telltale signs of a boy or a girl. But they didn't know, right? So we, we see in John's birth the fact that it is a, a son, the fact that it is a boy, the first of, well, not the first, but a, the, a, along the chain of, answers to prayer along the chains of the prophetic revelation that Gabriel gave. John is now born. It is a man-child. It is a step in the fulfillment of all the promises that were given to Zacharias and to Elizabeth by the angel Gabriel. So her neighbors rejoiced with her, the text says, over God's great mercy, and this child is now born. We fast forward in the text eight days in verses 59 and 60. Eight to the eighth day, which was according to the law in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, the day when the child would be circumcised, and it was also the day that they gave the child his name. And the text tells us, It came to pass on the eighth day that, the that they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. So the people that come, there would typically have been a priest that, that did the circumcision. And they come and they, they give him the name Zacharias. And, and Elizabeth says, Absolutely not. We, we're not doing Zacharias. We're doing the name John. Now, upon this point, we pause for a moment. The fact that Elizabeth knows that his name would be John and that she is so adamant about it reveals that she and Zacharias have been communicating regarding the child and, and all that this child would mean. Elizabeth didn't just have it, conceive and say, wow, this is miraculous. Zacharias had, had communicated to her what's going on here, that this child would be the forerunner of Messiah, that he was to be special, and that his name would be John, according to the angel Gabriel. What this also reminds us, or tells us, indicates to us, is that Zacharias, 
upon becoming deaf and dumb, he got it. He, he, he began to figure it out, right? He began to understand this is going to happen, so much so that he tells his wife, when, when, when it's time to name him, if I can't speak yet, he must be named John. So this name is given to John in faith, in faith that this child is who Gabriel said he would be, in faith that everything that God said was going to come to pass is going to come to pass. So he communicates these, these wishes to his wife, and she carries them out. Uh, showing this faith. And it shouldn't surprise us because uh, though Zacharias had this lapse in faith when the angel Gabriel spoke with him, remember, he's a a man of great piety and righteousness. He he was not stubborn and defiant to to the angel Gabriel. He was only doubtful. We continue reading in verses 61 through 63. The text says, And they said unto her, this would be those that came to circumcise the child, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. Now the people were confused by Elizabeth's name choice because the name was not in the family. It honors no one. This would have been very, very unusual for Jewish culture to, to name a child, especially this, special, this kind of a special child, Right? Only one child in their old age. It wasn't supposed to happen. It was miraculous. They're rejoicing in the Lord. They say, aha, let's honor Zacharias. Let's name him after his father. And she says, no, it's John. And they start thinking through the lineage. There's no John in your family. Who, who are you honoring here? Well, the Lord, right? We're honoring the Lord. And they signal to Zacharias to get his take on it. Zechariah, are you okay with this? Are you really okay with his name being John? Now, this is where we come to consider the, the, re, the, the likelihood that Zechariah was not just dumb, but probably also deaf. We've mentioned that a couple of times. In the scriptures, we see it specifically mentioned that Zechariah would not be able to speak until all was fulfilled. But if Zechariah could hear, why would they signal to him, make signs to him, If he could hear, they would have just spoken to him. But they didn't. They made signs to him as to what he would like. And then he took a writing table and wrote his name as John. So this is where we get that idea, the possibility, I would say the probability that Zechariah, it's not just that he couldn't speak, but it's probably that he could not hear. Both of those senses had been shut off. So they make signs to him, and he communicates this. His name is John. Zechariah thus affirms the command of the Lord, affirms the prophecy of God. He calls his son John. He fulfills the final element of Gabriel's prophecy about this young child. And as this prophecy was fulfilled, we read this in verses 64 to 66. His mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed and he spake and praised God and fear came on all that dwelt round about them and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. So here we see the fulfillment of the large portion of Gabriel's prophecy, other than the fact that he would be the forerunner for Messiah. As far as the birth is concerned, we see the final fulfillment of that prophecy. Now it's interesting, is it not, that Gabriel conditioned Zacharias' physical restoration upon his own actions. There were parts that, that, that certainly Zechariah didn't have as much say in, but the son was conceived. Elizabeth bore him. He was born. He was circumcised. And then the final piece of the puzzle that had to be put in place is that his name would be John. And Zechariah was the one that would choose that, which means the condition upon which Zechariah's his maladies, his, his afflictions would be healed, his capacity to speak and to hear again, the condition upon which that was placed was his own faith. Zechariah, this prophecy will come to pass, and when it does, you can speak again. Oh, by the way, it won't come to pass unless you name him John. And then you can speak again. He was given that ability to speak And when he did so, the scriptures tell us he immediately began to praise the Lord. Now, we do not yet read the content of this praise, but we do read the reaction of the people to this praise. The text tells us fear came 
on all that dwelt round about them. The idea that when Zacharias received his voice again, it verified that there was something special about this child. They probably should have known that already by the fact that Elizabeth conceived a child after the birthing years, after it was biologically impossible for her to do so. But here they say there is something very special going, and that caused them to fear the Lord. It caused them to have that awe, that reverence, that respect that says something is going on here and God is doing it. So all throughout the hills of Judea, all throughout the area of Hebron, the people wondered at the things that had taken place here and knew that this child was to be something special, that the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now comes the psalm of praise that we get to read from Zacharias. And it begins in verse 67. The text tells us his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, similar to his wife some six months ago when she heard the voice of Mary and the salutation of Mary, <coughs> excuse me, the babe leapt in her womb and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. So too here we see Zacharias filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is not speaking of salvation, right? John was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Elizabeth being filled. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit coming upon men and women for a purpose, enabling them to do something. The Holy Spirit, this, this is not indwelling unto salvation. This is filling for ministry. And so the Holy Spirit fills him for ministry. And when we read of someone being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's safe for us to assume that while they are proclaiming the praises unto the Lord, or they're proclaiming the word of the Lord, while filled with the Spirit, it's safe to assume that what they're saying is coming from the Spirit, and thus is true, thus is accurate. It's not just their opinion, it's the overflow of the Spirit of God through them. And this is what we read. In verses 68 and 69, the text says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. I love this. It's important to note right away that the praise that Zechariah lifts up. Now, think about this with me. If you had not been able to speak for nine months plus, probably more, closer to a year, what would be the first words out of your mouth when you could speak again? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? What would I say after a year of not being able to speak? Zechariah does not direct his praise toward God, toward his restoration. Thank the Lord I can speak and hear again. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even direct the praise toward God for his son. Praise God for a miraculous son that was born. What does he say? He points his praise toward the Messiah that's coming. The Messiah is coming. The first words out of his mouth was, Praise the Lord, he has raised up the Messiah. Can you see how important the Messiah is? Even before he praised the Lord for being able to speak again, which he actually never gets around to, he does get around to praising the Lord for his son. But before he praises the Lord for his son, he says, Praise the Lord, Messiah is coming. He's coming. He's on his way. The Lord has raised up the horn of salvation. The Lord has redeemed his people. That wouldn't be through his son, would it? That would be through Messiah. But if his son has come, the one who is the forerunner to Messiah, that means Messiah is here. Nine months of praise and of wonder which had stirred inside of Zacharias now comes pouring out, and it comes pouring out, and the first thing he said is, praise God, he's redeemed his people. Praise God, the Redeemer is here. Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in dark and troubled times. We'll talk about that more in our evening, no, in our morning sermon next week, excuse me. Rome was asserting her power. God had not openly communicated with the nation in nearly 400 plus years. And God was now visiting his people with hope and with redemption initiating that redemption, and it caused tremendous joy. He states that God has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. A horn in the Hebrew culture was an object of strength, of power. When you think of animals, 
uh, particularly those that have horns, right? Um, the horn is their power. It is their strength, whether that's uh, horn proper or antlers. That is their strength. It's their offense. It's their defense. It's what they have. It's what they use. It, it, it's the strength that they have. And that's the idea here, that when they talk about a man's horn, raising up a horn or, or, or a man's horn, it's speaking about his strength, his power, everything that is in him whereby he can stand in the day of adversity. The Messiah would be the strength of God's salvation. When we think of everything that is the salvation of the Lord, the horn of that salvation, the power of that salvation, the part that gives it strength is the Messiah. He would give strength to all of God's promises. Now, the reference is likely directed toward a prophecy found in Psalm 132. In Psalm 132, verse 17, the scriptures tell us, David writing, Therefore will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. So David foresees through his prophecies that his horn, his strength would one day bud. That his strength would come to full fruition. And he connects this promise to the promises, and we'll talk about those in the evening service over the next several weeks, to the promises of the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant, that God would raise up a seed through David that would sit perpetually on the throne of David. And that seed is Messiah. The promises regarding Messiah were, were, were pervasive in the Old Testament, and David pro <coughs> excuse me, promises that one day there would be an anointed of God that word anointed in the Hebrew is the word Messiah. That's the Hebrew word. And so this anointed of God would be ordained and would be the bud of David's horn. The, the greatest of David's strength. Continuing in verse 70 of Luke 1. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophet, Zechariah is talking here, remember, which have been since the world began. From the very beginning of time, God had prophesied of the ministry of Messiah through his prophets. Jesus Christ is called in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Truly we understand that redemption, the redemption, the Messiah redeeming man from his sin, this was never an afterthought. This wasn't a plan B. We've said this before, that when Adam and Eve fell to sin, God did not look down and say, oh no, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do now. This wasn't expected. I guess I'll just have to throw together a plan. Well, maybe, maybe my son will, will, can die for them and, and then we can redeem them out of this mess they've gotten themselves into. That wasn't it. Redemption through Messiah was, was plan A. It's always been there. And as we flesh out Messiah's ministry, we'll see why. We'll see what that means. We'll see how important it is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be the one to do everything that we need Him to do to get us into right standing with God. Redemption was God's intention from eternity past. And so redemption has been promised from eternity past. Spoken from the mouth of His prophets. It was spoken through Job. Job spoke of the Redeemer that he knew lived. I know my Redeemer liveth, Job said. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob spoke of their Messiah. Moses spoke of the Messiah. Samuel, David, the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel spoke of the Messiah. The, the, the speaking prophets spoke of Messiah. There's an unbroken chain of messianic prophecy from Genesis to Malachi until the time when that prophecy is fulfilled in the New Testament. Fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. And while the promise regarding Messiah, the promises are many, the theme of all those promises is the same. Redemption. Salvation. Zechariah' thoughts regarding redemption flow from contemporary to historical. He begins in verse 71. He says that we should be saved from our enemies. He praises the Lord for the horn of salvation which has been raised up to save them from their enemies on that day at that time. No doubt Zechariah is thinking of Rome here. But one can trace the enemies of God's people and God's promises of deliverance all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to, to Satan's attempts to destroy the people of God from the very beginning. 
God had promised in Deuteronomy 12 that the nation of Israel would enter the land of Canaan and be given rest from all their enemies. And yet they had never really fully found that place of rest, had they? They had never truly aligned themselves with God to the extent that they could be fully redeemed from all of their enemies. And the condition upon which that redemption would take place was that they would align themselves with God in obedience. Something the nation could never do under the law. And so Jesus Christ came to give them the means by which to be redeemed from their enemies and then to redeem them. So, Jer so uh, God promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Write it upon their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. The promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit who would come in and would give men the capacity to serve God from the inside out. So it is that Christ, in Christ, would be fulfilled the promises that God had made to the fathers. And Zechariah acknowledges this as he goes from his day, salvation in his day, thinking back in time toward all of those who had lived before him, he says in verses 72 to 75, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. That was the promise that once redeemed from their sin, they would be able to stand before God and serve him in holiness and righteousness for the rest of their days. All of Christ's followers still await the day when we will be delivered from all of our enemies. The last of these, the scriptures tell us, and we consider it on Resurrection Sunday, is death. But they will all be put under the feet of Jesus Christ. He will deliver us from every enemy that we may worship him without fear and holiness and righteousness. Beginning in verse 76, Zechariah turns his message toward the young John, now only eight days old, and we read this. He, he looks to John and he says, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation unto the people by the remission of their sins. The, through the tender mercies of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't that beautiful? He acknowledges John's position as the, the herald, the prophet of the highest, the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. This is what Gabriel told Zechariah would, would be from the prophecy in Malachi 4. But he goes on to connect several more dots, declaring that this ministry of preparation will comprise giving the people of God the knowledge of salvation by the remission of their sins. The word remission there literally means pardon, freedom, forgiveness. That John's purpose would be to herald the Messiah and to tell the people that the forgiveness of their sins had come. And that that would bring them into the knowledge of God. That without earning, without deserving it, they would receive forgiveness of their sins. I just read to you a few moments ago, Jeremiah 31, 33, where we read of the promise of an inward change in the hearts of God's people that would position them for God's blessings. In verse 34 of that same passage, the Bible tells us this as it continues. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them Unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Zechariah connected the knowledge of the Lord to the forgiveness of the Lord and he's doing that because he knows Jeremiah 31 where God connects the knowledge of the Lord to the forgiveness of the Lord. They shall all know me. Why? Because I will forgive their sins. Because I will remove their iniquities from them. I will remember their sin no more. Therefore, they shall know me. 
the knowledge of salvation by the remission of sins. That was God's promise to the nation. And Zacharias, being filled with the Holy Spirit, is saying this child will bring to them the acknowledgement of that which God promised. Zacharias reminds us all that the mercy of God which has been sent has been sent through the Messiah as he came to redeem the world. And so we consider the words of the prophet Jeremiah, not just in Jeremiah 31, but in Lamentations 3, where he says this, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The mercy of the Lord is all that stands between us and eternal destruction. And yet the mercy of the Lord is so great, so vast, so far-reaching in its scope that we who are in Christ need never fear such an end, such a destruction. We don't live under the guilt and fear of condemnation. For in God's great faithfulness, we are the unworthy recipients of God's great mercy. And in God's mercy, God sent into the darkness of the world a great light. What Zacharias calls here the day spring from on high. We talk about this every Christmas when we have that, that Christmas season and we consider the, this passage in, in Luke. A day spring is a way of talking about a sunrise when the day springs. That in the darkness and the evil of the times that they were in, God sent a divine sunrise to shed the light of the truth of God's word into the darkness of sin and death that enveloped the world. A light that would illuminate righteousness and guide the feet of the righteous into the way of peace. And is not peace what the heart of every man longs for? Is not peace the thing that is needed above anything else? Does not every man ache for that inward contentment that grants our spirits rest? Zechariah says, this young child will herald the day spring from on high, the divine sunrise that will point our way into peace. Peace with God. Peace from the guilt and punishment, pain, conviction of sin. True peace. As Zechariah considers the Messiah calling him the day spring on high, he, he's again making prophetic links here. He's had nine months to study the scriptures, so he's probably going to make some prophetic links, right? The first of these is in Malachi 4, which we read a while ago. Verses 1 and 2 says this, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. They'll be burned. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you, he says, that fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And notice there, it's not Son, S-O-N, of Righteousness. It's Son, S-U-N, of Righteousness. The divine sunrise when righteousness would shine out into this world, the healing in his wings, the wings being a poetic and descriptive term for the rays of the sun. The, the, the wings of the sunrise would spread across this world and bring with it healing and lead us into peace. But you know, we also read in Isaiah chapter 60, and perhaps this was also in Zechariah's mind as he said this, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Who's the thy there? Who is Isaiah speaking to? He's speaking to Messiah. The one whose light the Gentiles would come to, that's Messiah's light. 
And Isaiah says, Messiah, arise. Pop up. Sun, let, let, let the sunrise come. Shine into the darkness of this world and bring with it the healing. Bring with it the peace. Take the people out of darkness. Anoint them in your light, but not just, not just, not just Israel, but let the Gentiles come to your light as well. Which, of course, is what Christ did. The light of the truth of God shining through Messiah into the darkness of this world upon all men who would receive it. And as our text in chapter 1 ends, we read in verse 80, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. This is all that we read about the childhood of John. He was strong in spirit as he grew. He went into the deserts of Israel until the day that his ministry began. We've already, throughout our exposition, considered several important concepts. We've contemplated our redemption through remission of sins. We have acknowledged God's great plan for, for His people. We've acknowledged that Christ's way through the Gospel is the way of peace. All important lessons which we can take with us. But I would like for us to consider perhaps a, a concept that's a little bit less deeply connected, but something which I believe needs to be brought up this morning. And that is considering the blessing of affliction. And I take this from Zechariah. Everything that we heard this morning was the Holy Spirit speaking through the man Zechariah when his mouth was opened. Zechariah could not speak for nine plus months. Was likely deaf as well. And in this case, his affliction was, as sometimes it can be in our lives, somewhat self-inflicted. That it was the consequence of his doubt that he was afflicted with this malady. But you know, within the scope of our lives comes many forms of affliction. But what all affliction has in common to we who are in Christ, when experienced by a believer and responded to by fleeing to Christ, is that it directs us into greater blessings in the latter end. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Affliction is intended by God to draw us toward Himself, to cause us to flee to that which we know cannot fail, to draw us unto the strength that we need to have in our weakness. This is why often when we pray together and we pray for those who are sick and we pray for those who are injured, one of the things that we pray is that the Lord would use this to make Himself known unto them and to grow them in grace and in understanding. We pray that prayer because we, we, we believe this verse. That in our affliction, it gives us the capacity to understand God better. So we pray this in alignment with God's will, that God's design through the affliction would come to pass. This morning, I'd like us to consider three types of affliction. And as we do so, I'd like us to consider the biblical blessings that surround those types of affliction. We'll get to Zechariah in our final application. Our first one this morning, afflictions of testing bring about spiritual purity and usability. Afflictions of testing bring about spiritual purity and usability. For this, I would like to use as our, our biblical example the man Job. Job was a man who went from great wealth and prosperity to utter physical ruin literally overnight. He went from being one of the wealthiest and most prominent men in his region to losing almost everything that he had. And his initial reaction is pretty fantastic. We read in Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job rightly recognizes that it is all God's to begin with, and so God has every right to do what He will with that which is God's. 
that God gave him everything that he had blessed him with, so God has every right to take away everything that he had blessed him with. But the grief lingers. Things don't get better. In fact, they get worse. After this, Job is plagued with boils from the top of his head, the scriptures say, to the very soles of his feet. You can't walk with boils on your feet. He was in constant pain. And then his friends come, and they sit with him for seven days in silence, seeking to identify with his grief. And then, when they finally open their mouths, they say, we can't take it anymore. Job, you're a sinner. Stop sinning. God is doing this to you because you're a sinner. Stop sinning. I know that when you stop sinning, God will restore you. Job says, I haven't done anything wrong. They say, get over it, Job. You've done something wrong. Pinpoint it. You're a sinner. You're a wicked man. Get it right. And so they, and that's Job. Job is them going back and forth debating this until God finalizes the debate. And Job pinpoints something here. In one of his many speeches, through his struggles and confusion, even his misunderstanding, there were things that he didn't understand and he didn't even get right. But he knew something very clearly and he expresses it in Job 23. He says this in verses 8 through 10. Behold, I go forward, but he, that's God, is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. He says, I'm looking around for him. On the left hand where he doth work, he says, but I cannot behold him. He hideth on the right hand that I cannot see him. I can't find God. I can't understand what's going on here. I don't get it. I've searched my heart. There's nothing wrong. I, I don't have, there's nothing between me and God, and yet this is still happening. He says, I can't find God. But notice what he then says in verse 10. But he, that's God, he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. We may not understand what God is doing sometimes, but we can always understand this, that God is doing it and that he is in control. And when the trial is over, when the testing is complete, when God has taken you where he wants you and he's shaped you into what he wants you to be, you'll come forth as gold. Your affliction will have made you something that you never could have been made outside of it. Your affliction will have shaped you into what God needs you to be to serve him as he wants you to serve him. And you can trust that even when you can't understand that. Rest assured, you won't always understand. <laughs> right? Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You can't necessarily understand God's thoughts and ways. You can't always pinpoint, now I know what God's doing. I see what he's doing here and I can get through it now because I know. But you can and indeed you must trust that even when you don't know the plan, that God has a plan. And when you align yourself with him, even in the trials, it will result in God's plan coming to fruition for your best good and God's best glory. Believer, maybe you're going through some affliction today and maybe it's the affliction of trial. Maybe God wants to use these afflictions to refine you into something greater for Him. He's growing you into what He needs you to be to be a usable vessel for His glory. Don't despise this affliction. For even though it's difficult, in this affliction is your opportunity to become what God wants you to be. So learn to grow, yield, don't resist, and be made gold. Affliction of testing is brought about to bring out in you spiritual purity and usability. Secondly, prolonged affliction. This brings about spiritual dependence and humility. Prolonged affliction brings about spiritual dependence and humility. You know, there are times when the affliction we have is not meant to test us or to try us. It's not meant for a temporary time to bring us to a place and then to be released. Sometimes it's a lifestyle within which God has chosen us to live. Maybe it's a chronic health condition which won't go away. Maybe it's a sacrificial lifestyle which God has called you to live, devoid of certain of life's pleasantries. Maybe it's poverty over wealth. Maybe it's singleness over marriage. What, whatever it might be, uh, uh, something that you might perceive as a deficiency in, in your life or, or a struggle which, which isn't 
going to go away apart from something miraculous and it just doesn't appear that that's the Lord's will. Whatever it might be, there are times when our afflictions aren't trials to make us more. They're trials to keep us more. Let me explain that. Not a trial to make us more, but a trial to keep us more. What I mean by that is that some afflictions are meant to be perpetual reminders of God's grace so that we will perpetually depend upon Him. Paul faced such a trial, didn't he? We read about it in 2 Corinthians 12. He says this in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 6. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but now I forbear. Lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, because God has blessed Paul with so much revelation and apostolic authority, he says, lest I should be exalted, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing, he says, I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. And he, that's God, said unto me, that's Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Notice Paul's response. He says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Here it is. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul had an infirmity. And he requested, God, please take this away from me. He asked three times. And following the third request, God replies back and he says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. That the time when God will be the strongest in your life within any context is the time when you are weak so that God can be strong through you. So Paul, seeing the affliction, was not there to test him, not there to try him, not there to hinder him, but rather that affliction was there to weaken him so that God's strength could be magnified in him. He says, if that's what God is doing, that's what I want. If God is doing this to weaken me so that He can have more power through me, if God is minimizing me so that He can be exalted, if I am weak so that God can be made strong, well then God, let's, ha let's, let's have it. Bring it on. He says, I'm not just going to accept it, I am going to glory in it. I'm going to revel in God's choice for me because this choice that God has made for me, the weakness that God has put me in is my best chance to glorify and serve Him. So I'll take it. I'll glory in it. Maybe there's some among us today whose afflictions aren't trials to make you stronger. Much rather, God has chosen to give you an affliction so that you will remain weak in Him so that you will not be lifted up with pride, so that you will not try to do it all yourself, but depend upon God every step of the way. Don't resist this. It isn't fun, but if your weakness can mean God's strength, then it's great. You know as well as I that your life can be no better than what God has chosen for you as you yield it to Him. Every bit of weakness you possess is an opportunity for God's strength to be magnified in you. So affliction of testing, it brings about spiritual purity, it brings about usability. Afflictions uh, that are prolonged bring about spiritual dependence and humility. Third and finally, afflictions of chastening bring about spiritual correction and remind us of God's love. This is the third consideration. When we, through our rebellion, our ignorance, our selfishness, pursue a course that brings affliction, whether human or divine, we often call this chastening. And while it's never God's desire to need to chasten a rebellious child, 
This does not mean that God cannot use it to your best good. Discipline is an extension of love. Did you know that? A parent who loves his child will discipline a rebellious child. A government who loves its nation will discipline the criminal. A church that loves one another will discipline the wayward follower. This is love. If you don't have discipline, you don't have love. Because discipline is love. And of this point, there is no ambiguity. If you are a child of God, by placing your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, then when you rebel against God, God will chasten you because he loves you. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. This idea is mentioned here quite plainly, but it's, it's magnified in Hebrews chapter 12 to the church of God. And let's read that together. In verse 5 of Hebrews 12 through 13, the Bible says, And ye have not forgotten the exhortation which, speak, which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. So he's hearkening back to Proverbs 3. Nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? What, what, what kind of a father doesn't discipline his children? But if ye be without chastisement, he says, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You are, you're, you're not a child of God if God doesn't chasten you when you rebel. You are not a child of God if you do not undergo chastening when you rebel. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we've gave them reverence. If you, if you revere a father, if you thank a father, a, a physical father for correcting you because it taught you lessons, he says, shall we not rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he, that's God, for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening, he says, for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down in feeble knees and make straight the paths of your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. But let it rather be healed. Chastening is a process of patience. The person who is doing the chastening, the father in this sense, must be exercised as you wait for the discipline to take root. To do the work of bringing the offender in line. That chastening at the moment of the chastening is a terrible process for everyone involved. I, don't, I, I should hope there's not a father in this room who enjoys chastening your children, disciplining them. You don't want to have to go through that process. The child certainly doesn't enjoy it either. But here's what we know about chastening, about discipline. As we discipline, it yields the fruit of obedience, of righteousness. And that's what Paul is saying here. No one likes to be chastened for their wrongs. But within the act of chastening lies the key to spiritual success. And so as we go through the affliction of chastening, where God allows us to suffer perhaps the consequences of our own physical or our own sinful choices, where he lifts his hand of divine protection from us to allow us to suffer some of those repercussions, or perhaps there is a divine hand of, of proactive chastening against us, it's our privilege to see that this chastening is an extension of God's love for us and thus, when we see it, to respond by aligning ourselves back under the hand of the Lord so that the chastening can end. Because the chastening ends when we realign our will with the Lord's, right? That's how it works with fathers. You don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to spank my kid now. You say, when there's an offense, you chasten the offense until the child aligns his heart with the expectation. And when the child's heart is aligned, the need for chastening is over. So it is with God. 
And when we align ourselves with his will, through his chastening, the chastening will cease because the offense has ceased. So Paul says here, lift up your hands and your feeble knees. Make the path straight. Be healed. Get it right. When you're, out, when you're out of fellowship with God, get it right. And know that God did what he did out of love. There are perhaps those under the sound of my voice today that are under the chastening hand of the Lord. There's a vein of rebellion in your life that the Holy Spirit has identified unto you through conviction, but that you have resisted and now God is resisting you. Even in these times, and this is where we could put Zacharias in, in, in a way here, God can use this affliction to bring us out of our sin, but also to draw us nearer to himself. Some of my favorite times with my children have been the hugs and the cuddles after, after the chastening. Some of the closest times we've had have been in those times of reconciliation. Imagine how those nine months must have been for Zecharias in the silence of his own thoughts. Imagine how much he must have grown in his understanding and love for God in that time. As he poured over the Old Testament scriptures, learning everything he could about the herald of the Messiah and Messiah himself. Imagine the amount of meditation on scripture, the patient prayer that he must have had in those months. Imagine how much the time of chastening that he went through, the time of affliction he went through, much have, must have grown him spiritually. And it, it can do the same for us as well. Three considerations. Affliction of testing. It brings about purity and usability. Prolonged affliction. It brings about dependence and humility. Affliction of chastening brings about correction. And it reminds you that God loves you. It reminds you that you're a child of God. Affliction in this life as believers is, is not any more pleasant than affliction in anyone else's life. But our outlook can be different. Because though we may not always understand all of what God is doing, we can indeed always trust that God does know. God does understand that God is in control and that he is allowing these circumstances in his perfect love for his perfect reasons and for your perfection. Let's close in prayer.